Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Orla Shanahi of VoxGig, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting and attending. In each episode, I sit down for a relaxed fireside chat with people in the public speaking community. My aim is to learn how they've mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And just before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to our sponsor, simplecast.com, the first and last word in podcasts. Today, I'm talking with Leslie Tully. Leslie is CEO and founder of We Are Design Thinking, and she was formerly head of design thinking at Bank of Ireland. She speaks frequently on the subject of design thinking. She's also an adjunct lecturer at Trinity College Business School and UCD Smurfit Business School. Leslie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to speak with you, Orla. So many speakers' first public speaking experience happens at work. We found that on the podcast, many people start at work. And it's often in a situation where their boss comes in and says, I need someone to speak, can you do it? And you have maybe three minutes to prepare. So was that the case for you? Was it something like that? Or did you have a more deliberate entry into public speaking? What was your experience? That is such a fantastic question. So my previous role as Head of Design Thinking Bank of Ireland was just that experience. It's a large organization and you're constantly talking to colleagues, either in an informal setting or a formal setting. And so absolutely, my boss was very adept at throwing me in without a moment's notice to talk to people and relay what we were doing. Mm -hmm. In that role, we were setting up the innovation department, which was a brand new department. And so we had to educate our colleagues on what we were doing. And by the nature of what we do, it's actually quite fuzzy. It doesn't necessarily have very clear outcomes. So you have to find a through line to tell your colleagues what it is you're doing and why you should be doing it and why they should be involved. So I learned a huge amount in one to two years of just speaking to people and conversing with them and learning what people actually responded to and how to sculpt what you're saying to whatever audience you're speaking with. Okay. That's funny, actually, because one of the things I was going to ask you maybe a bit later on was about evangelizing in your work. Yes. Certainly in my own experience and other people who've started out in arts as you did, if I understood that correctly, you started out in a more arts-related qualification and you transitioned later on. Yes. So people who are taking that maybe more creative approach in a, let's say, a tech or finance sector often have to evangelize for their own department or their own work. Mm. So it sounds like you had exactly that experience early on that you had to almost justify your own job, would you say? But so perceptive, that's exactly what we had to do. And yeah, you're right. I was coming with a steep learning curve. I was coming from the cultural industries, visual arts, and where everything is sold by the visuals to a world where everything is sold by what you're saying, what you're speaking about. So in my experience, evangelizing is a hugely important part of, I would say, anybody's job, particularly in areas where people would be unfamiliar with the subject matter. And that's everything from innovation and design right through to kind of business models and kind of what the current trends and topics are that are happening in business. So I think it's a massive part. It's a great way to learn and it's a great way to educate yourself because they say, you know, the philosophy is if you can teach it to somebody else, you've learned it. So in my last role, 
I had to really understand the subject matter in order to be able to evangelize it. And so for a steep learning curve for someone like me coming from the creative arts into banking, which was a really, really steep learning curve, it allowed me then to make the learning my own about banking and educate myself in order to be able to transfer that information and that knowledge to my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Evangelizing is hugely important. It's a great way to get into public speaking in a nice kind of informal way. And also one of the things I took from the creative industries was both visuals. So the strength of having something supporting your story that you're telling people. And within that, the messaging and the arc of a story. So I studied film in college. And if there was one thing, there were two things film school taught me. One, the power of teamwork. Because when you're on a film set, everybody has to work together to create what the vision is from the director or the producer. And then the second thing is, what is the story? All films are based on a three-act structure. So I took that into the evangelizing I was doing in my last role, which was, okay, what do people in the room need to know? How is it relevant to them in their day jobs? And let's take them on the journey for what we're trying to achieve together. Okay. My first job out of college was as a technical editor for a big tech company. And it was such a difficult experience for me, really. I just found myself dumped in the deep end and I was having to justify my own job to people who had been there years. As I found out after I started, I was actually their first ever editor and proofreader. And there were political, you know, things going on and lots of people didn't like the idea of a person coming in. So that was a bit of a digression, but it's just so interesting for me to hear how, you know, maybe I could have done it right or people in a similar situation could do it right. So let's stick with this convincing other people for a minute. If my experience is anything to go by, not everyone is an immediate convert. You know, as I said, there could be existing issues going on in the company or people just don't like the idea of someone coming in, tell them what to do. So did you and do you have a a specific approach? in persuading people to take your work seriously and your role seriously? Absolutely. And I I can totally identify what you're speaking about, having to justify your existence, having to convince people who may have hardened mindsets that this person who's coming in actually knows what they're talking about and people are prepared to be convinced by them. And so like you, I went into the deep end, right? I had no background in the financial services, right? So I wasn't credible from day one, right? Mm -hmm. But I knew what was driving me And I did certainly believe in the subject matter I was talking about. And I found a couple of things that worked well for me. One, I was very authentic about where I was at, right? I wasn't pretending to be knowledgeable about banking. I was coming in with a specific position, which was, I believe we need more innovation. And I think this is how we're going to do it. I also then would always acknowledge the subject matter experts in the room, people who had been there. It sounds really obvious, but people who, who know their craft or know the industry really, really well, they're really important. And then I suppose the third piece, kind of more on a human empathetic side was, you know, I would always try and acknowledge where the people in the room were at and try and meet them. Yeah. It's so easy in big organizations or in any company to kind of, you know, silos exist and and people take to their positions. But there's a term in education, which I adopted when I would be speaking with people, which is meet the student where they're at. Mm-hmm. And so I found that really well. So, you know, I have all types of people and certainly I teach in Trinity and you've got multidisciplinary students in the room and you've got to understand that some of this stuff, how they learn is different, how they receive information is different, and then their mindsets are completely different. So sometimes it's actually not about you or, or what you're saying. It's just where the actual audience is at. Mm-hmm. And trying to find the common ground, you only find it through practice. And again, making what you're telling people relevant. I think if the audience is going away with something they can apply themselves, it's really, really helpful to bridge that gap of convincing people. Absolutely. And it's so good for the audience. 
to go away with something they can use straight away. That's a fantastic way to end, you know, when they're walking out and they're literally, oh, I can use this or that that she said. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Very sound advice. Don't sell to them. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, who wants to be sold to these days? Nobody does. Yeah. People want to come away more enriched from an experience. And what you were saying there about communicating all that to other people. So did you ever get any specific public speaking training or was it all completely self-taught? How did you develop your skills? I, it was all completely self-taught and I'll be really honest. I hate public speaking. <laughs> I, hate it. I am an introvert extrovert. In film, I much preferred producing rather than being in front of the camera, even though I did acting classes. I much prefer being the number two than the number one. It's just more comfortable, but I was really pushed into the number one position by the nature of my last role and my current role. So, you know, I had to get out of my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So I had to teach myself. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I spoke in London, I'll never forget, about two years ago. And it was to an audience of real experts uh, in the field of innovation and finance. And I got myself in such a state that I remember getting a taxi to the event. And I remember thinking, God, you know, if there was a terrorist attack in London, I'd actually be more grateful because (laughs) the conference would not be on. I got myself in such a state. But then you get there and you do it and, you know, people came up to me and they were like, that was amazing, really enjoyed it. And I just couldn't relate. I was like, no, you're, you're lying to me. Like, mm-hmm. I just couldn't, I, I couldn't bridge the gap. And it's, you know, I'll be really honest, it's taken me years, absolute years to actually enjoy it. And I've had some massive failings. I mean, I spoke at Inspire Fest two years ago and again, you know, wanted to do it, but then didn't want to do it. You know, spent a long time developing the story and the visuals and had finally cracked it. And we did the rehearsals and the big day came, walk out on stage. And the way Inspirefest is set up, I mean, you're in Fort Gosh, there's about 2,000 people in the audience. But when you're on the stage, you can't see anybody. You just see black. That's right. So it's quite disconcerting. And I looked up at the screen. And when I looked up at the screen, they had used the wrong PowerPoint presentation. Oh, and the PowerPoint, I feel your pain. <laughs> oh, no, this... And I had spent months doing the design on the PowerPoint and I looked up and the version they had used had been the one that I had marked up for the designer. So it had red arrows saying, Jerry, kill this. I don't think it's good. The next slide, it had all the markings Mm -hmm. instructing the designer. But what can you do? You've got 2000 people waiting to hear you speak. And it was a real, it was a real moment to go, you know, the show has to go on. Yeah. So literally that's all you could do in that specific moment. Show must go on. And did you use humor or anything to deal with it or or how did you? You know what? It was a lesson in distracting the audience from the huge screen behind me and (laughs) getting them involved in the story. Okay. Yeah. It was pure acting and it was white knuckle. Mm. And it was a terrifying experience, but people are there to be entertained. They've paid their money. They've bought a ticket. You've been given the privilege of that moment and you just have to rise to the occasion. But it was, (laughs) it was tough. Yeah. It was very tough. It amazes me how often, and when we're talking about public speaking, how often the word fear comes up <laughs> and all its synonyms like white knuckle and, you know, wish the ground would open up and swallow me. You know, I think public speakers spend a lot of our time in abject fear. So do you have any general approaches of your own for dealing with nerves? Like that example, when you're sitting in the taxi and you're wishing anything would happen that you didn't have to go do the talk. Do you have any standard stuff that you apply to help deal with that? I've developed three techniques to deal with the nerves. The first is the obvious one, which is rehearsal. 
and I would always write out a script. I would type it out, print it out, and then I would just keep rehearsing until I, I have my script off and I can just then forget it when it comes to the actual day. And I don't think anything beats that, knowing your material inside and out. Because if you're caught on the hop or there's Q&A, you've just got a fluidity to what you're saying. And I remember reading years ago that Steve Jobs would typically spend three weeks rehearsing before his big presentation, which would only last 15 minutes. But he would be so on cue with having done so much rehearsal. It just means that he was effortless when he went on stage. And the second thing I've developed lately is doing meditation. So I practice TM, Transcendental Meditation which is typically 20 minutes twice a day. Often you don't have that. So even just doing micro doses of it before you go on stage or do your presentation is really helpful just to remind yourself to breathe. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece is to kind of manage your ego and remind yourself that actually it's not about you. It's really not about you. You know, people are there to hear and learn. We just happen to be the vehicle that's delivering that. And that sometimes helps because, you know, it takes the focus about, you know, all those nerves about, you know, they laugh at me or I get it wrong or, you know, I'm not an expert and the imposter syndrome thoughts creep in and, and, and just kind of abstracting and going, you know what, this is actually about something maybe a bit bigger than me or something more important. So they're my three techniques to help manage nerves. Those are great. Yeah. And the meditation is very interesting because we hear so much about it. But it's not always clear how meditation can maybe apply as a, I'm saying this as a layperson, how it can apply to everyday life and to work. So to hear that you can actually very specifically do a micro meditation before going on stage is, is really helpful. I, I think people will, will find that really interesting. I wanted to ask you, I know you do lots of things. And one of those things is lecturing. He mentioned it there. He lectured at Trinity College Dublin Business School. So I wanted to ask you how you find lecturing as a type of public speaking? Are there a different set of skills that you need to harness for that? Do you need to get yourself into a different mindset? Yes, it's, that's a really good question. So lecturing is very different because your language is so, so important when you're lecturing. When you're giving a presentation on a subject matter, many times it can be relatively subjective, right? You don't typically in the business environment have people you know, questioning where you reference your material or asking you to cross-reference the thinking around a subject. So lecturing really is an opportunity to level up because everything has to be quite scientific. Students are there to learn and the information you're putting into the classroom and you're asking them to absorb and, and then potentially challenge in a, in a dissertation. You have to be right on point with everything. So it's a great discipline. It's a little bit like, you know, the analogy of kind of, you know, if you run in the gym on a treadmill, the treadmill is moving under your feet, where if you run outdoors, that's not there. And lecturing certainly is much more rigorous. And also, you know, you've got, you're going to, in my experience, you've got a broader church in many respects. You don't often know every student in the room. There isn't a mandate, so to speak. So I teach in innovation and I teach in design thinking. And so I'll have engineering students, um, science students, etc. And they're really challenging. They come from different disciplines and they're rigorous about wanting answers to why a methodology that you're teaching is the right one. We're typically in business. It's kind of received that, okay, look, you know, as a team, we're doing this and this is why. So uh, for that reason, I really enjoy lecturing. It, it certainly keeps the standard of presentation up. Mm -hmm. And also you're, you're constantly looking for new information. You're looking for the latest thinking and you get to challenge that thinking in the classroom. Okay. And do you find that those skills that you use for lecturing, do they transfer to other types, maybe less formal types of speaking? 
Can you leverage them? Yeah. I mean, I find that my language is tighter. The content I'm putting into the room is much cleaner in terms of you boil it down to the pure essence of what you need the learner to be picking up on. So I find that actually the experience of teaching students who are there to learn and understand how people learn is really, really valuable then when you try and transfer it mm-hmm. into the business environment. So for instance, I teach design thinking. There's a lot of tools. And typically when I started, I would be overloading people with tools in the first day because you want them to get as much value. And so lecturing has taught me that actually I know now the capacity of people generally. I would have like eight tools that I try and teach people in a day. And I've realized now it's too much. People can't process that level of information, not because they're stupid or anything like that. It's overloading. So now I would go and I'd only teach three tools and teach them in a really deep way. And, and lecturing has certainly taught me that. Right. You mentioned there a couple of times now design thinking. So let's talk about that for a moment. I know you're CEO of uh, your company, We Are Design Thinking. So let's just break that down a little bit. I'm not overly familiar with it myself. What is design thinking? In a recent interview, you referred to it as a human-centric approach to problem solving, which sounds great, but maybe you can give us chapter and verse on that. Sure, sure. So, so design thinking has been around for about 40 years, but it only really got formalized in the 90s and now into the, the noughties and onwards. So what it is, is it's an approach to problem solving that puts the human at the heart of, of problem solving. So typically, particularly in business, the perspective that's taken is from the business perspective, right? So it's about getting product out the door. It's about KPIs. It's about all the elements about a business. It doesn't really, in some cases, take into consideration who is the end user, who is the human at the end of that product that's been bought. And so design thinking changes the mindset of business, say, well, actually, let's look at what the human at the heart of this needs and design from there. So financial services is a really good one. For years, they have been selling products. They're selling, say, a mortgage. But for instance, when you're going to get a home, you're not going to buy a mortgage. You're going, you're in your mind, in the user's mind, it's about getting a home. And so there's an automatic disconnect there. Banks are selling you a mortgage and couples, single people, whatever, are looking to get a roof over their head. And so what design thinking does is puts those users at the heart of it and says, okay, let's think of things from their perspective. And so we use things like empathetic interviews where we'll go and sit in people's homes and really understand the complexity of their lives as they're trying to make decisions around products or services. And from there, then you've got some very deep insights, which our company specializes in, to then develop products out of those. And we've seen the proof of this. You know, I've mentioned Apple, Nike, Ikea, they're all human-centric businesses. They have obviously, you know, a business perspective. Of course, they do their commercial but they start from the human and they start from watching people's behaviors. And so Ikea is really interesting because, you know, one of the reasons we go to Ikea and take the products off the shelves ourselves is because many years ago, a store manager who was low on staff because they run a very lean model with Ikea saw humans, saw customers doing this themselves and had the good sense to send it up the line to the head office and said, look, people are doing this anyway. And so that's where the model of IKEA evolved into letting people go in and take the stuff off the shelves themselves, the products off the shelves themselves. And so that process has revolutionized business. And we've seen the evidence of it. There's a great organization called the DMI, Design Management Institute. And a couple of years ago, they did a study to see does design thinking actually make a fundamental difference to the bottom line. So they took 15 companies 
that were design-led and they measured them against the top 500 companies on the S&P. And they found that the design-led companies, the IKEA, the Nikes, the Apple, et cetera, they had a 211% increase in profit versus the non-design-led companies. And so that proved to, you know, super commercial, non-design-led businesses that actually this is something that works. And we see it every day. We see with the airlines, you know, Ryanair is a really good example of a company that's come around this form of thinking to say, you've got to put your customers at the heart of what you do because it pays. People will vote with their wallets when you give them really good customer experience because there's so much competition out there. So design thinking is just a great tool to help companies get to that place where they can design for their customers or their soon-to-be customers. Okay. And your analogy there, I mean, most people listening will probably relate to it about getting a mortgage. So instead of saying you're getting a mortgage, you say you're getting a home. That's a great analogy. And that's something I wanted to ask you about. So obviously VoxGig is a tech, small tech startup. And I know you've worked with startups before when you were with Bank of Ireland. So I want to ask you, how can that analogy transfer to tech startups in particular? Do you have insights into how those of us who work in tech startups can apply that to our particular sector? Yeah, because, you know, it's, it's interesting in Ireland or certainly in Europe, technology is taking humans out of the business, right? And if you look at countries like Japan, they're actually using technology to put humans into business, Right. And so one of the big ways technology can kind of adopt this way of thinking is being completely user-centric. And to a large degree, it is. But I think in the future, in the very near future, I think we're going to see people being prepared to pay for a much more human experience, having access to humans, so to speak. I think, you know, specifically in technology, the use of language, the use of experience and, and creating just a more engaged more human experience is something that technology is going to have to do because we're already kind of seeing a backlash against, you know, the isolation that technology is bringing. And so, I mean, we've seen design used very well in technology. Again, Apple is a very good way of demonstrating how well it's used, but people don't want to be challenging algorithms. And so in the financial services, for instance, there was a big hoo-ha around robo-advice And, you know, this whole concept that actually people will manage their wealth via an app. Mm -hmm. And the reality is none of those have really taken off and not because there hasn't been huge investment and great skills and and amazing talent behind them. But with certain things, people, humans want to look at somebody in their eyes. They want to see the whites of someone's eyes when they're making a big decision. And so MedTech, I think, has done this really well. And if you see how it's happening in Ireland you know, the notion of being able to have asynchronous appointments with a digital doctor, for instance, mm-hmm. right? So technology enabled, but that human experience is still there. And I think it's an interesting kind of inflection point we're at, where we're seeing the rise of humanity and technology. Okay. We're nearly at the end of our time, Leslie. Um, you already gave us a description earlier on of your white knuckle taxi ride, <laughs> which I'm guessing was one of your less good experiences with public speaking. So to finish up on a nice positive note, do you have a best or most memorable, in a good way, most memorable public speaking experience? Um, Well, I would also say the Inspire Fest presentation was probably the best as well, because for one simple reason, the message landed afterwards, even though I was in my, oh my God, I can't believe that happened and I'm a failure. The subject matter is something that I'm very passionate about, which is financial freedom for women. 
the number of women that came up to me afterwards and reached out to me and said, I'm really struggling with my finances. I don't know what to do. It was really inspiring to hear actually that I'm not alone. And so again, back to my point around, it's not about you people, you know, it's about the message when you're speaking and delivering content and presentations. That was a really nice sweetener for something that on a personal level, I thought I failed at, but actually in the end, it did create change. And and interestingly from that, I've been able to develop another business, which I'm working on, which is specifically to that point around helping females and their finances. So it was both the best of times and the worst of times. (laughs) Oh, yes. I like your literary allusion there. (laughs) That's great. It is actually fascinating how one talk can be both the best and worst. It's the human side, isn't it? It was really when those people were coming up to you afterwards that you got that feel good, you know, when you actually engaged with people afterwards. So um, it just goes, yeah, it shows that, yeah, it really is not all about you and not only not all about you, but also not only not all about the one talk. Correct. You know, that, that it can go outside the talk itself. Thank you so much, Leslie, for being with me today. I've certainly learned a lot and talking to you has made me want to read a lot more up about human-led thinking in business. So thanks for that. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with Orla. It really was. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Leslie. Bye. Thanks, Orla. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Fireside with Voxgig podcast. Just a few final notes before the embers fade. You can find show notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but it is a skill like any other and one you can learn. Visit voxgig.com slash speakers to subscribe to the newsletter. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact us directly, you can reach us on Twitter at voxgig. And if you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let us know and we'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check our sponsor, simplecast.com who helped make this podcast possible. Talk to you next time. And remember, take a deep breath, pause and step forward. Forward.